The Right Honorable Jim Bolter, Excellencies, members of the diplomatic board, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Matinico O'Brien and I'm delighted to welcome you this evening to our panel discussion. God defend New Zealand. From what? Courtesy of the late diplomat and foreign policy sage Terence O'Brien, this question features as a chapter titled in his book, Presence of Mind, where he speaks about risk, security, and foreign affairs. Incidentally, former Prime Minister Jim Walter, who's here with us tonight, hopes that every MP entering Parliament would read it as he spoke at Nicholas Ferry events on New Zealand's independent foreign policy terms of rights in print earlier this year. Indeed, as Aotearoa New Zealand await the formation of a new government, tonight's events couldn't be timelier. Yet we have just come through a general election where, once again, New Zealand's involvement in international affairs hardly featured. A recent Ipsos poll reported that less than 1% of voters thought defense and foreign affairs were in the top three issues facing New Zealand. What is the point then in devoting attention today to subjects beyond these shores that plainly do not much concern the New Zealand electorate or its political leaders? Mr. Boulder also stated at the same event, we can't force anybody to do anything. We are too small. We don't have the power. We don't have the money. We don't have any of that. All we can do is lead by intellectual argument and persuasion, and that we, and that we have no limit in doing, and we have the ability to do it, and to challenge New Zealanders to step up and not be silent to speak up, to seek to persuade others they should follow likewise. And I hope this is something we are contributing to today. And this is what we do at Diplosphere in our small way. As a non-partisan and independent organization, our mission is to shed light on world events and bring perspectives so that New Zealanders may be better informed and make better decisions. We are very fortunate today to have a top-notch panel to discuss New Zealand's independent foreign policy and what it means today, as well as top of mind geopolitical issues for the new government. And the international outlook is only set to become more challenging in a multipolar world where conflict is increasing as we have been tragically observing it in the Middle East or in Ukraine. I'm delighted to introduce Rosemary Vance, Chair of the New Zealand-US Council, former Ambassador to the United States, France, and Permanent Representative to the United Nations in New York. Dan O'Brien, co-founder of Diplosphere, John McKinnon, Chair of the New Zealand-China Council, and two-time ambassador to China. And last but not least, Honorable Tim Brozer, former trade minister and ambassador to Washington. Each speaker has eight minutes for contribution. 
small bell will sound after seven minutes, indicating one more minute to go. The bell has been donated by the late Terence O'Brien, so I will apply fiercely this way. Before we start, a quick rundown on house rules. Your phone silent mode, please. But go social crazy, tweet, LinkedIn posts, just use hashtag Um, In case of an earthquake, please drop, cover, and hold. In case of fire, please evacuate the building. In both cases, do not take the lifts. This event is being recorded for those who can't attend. On a side note, it seems like the London School of Economics have, has left its mark on tonight's panel. Two of our speakers, along with myself, are LSE alumni. So it seems like we've got a mini reunion right here on stage. So, um, so without any further ado, I'm going to, to introduce our first speaker, Rosemary Bank, as I said, is the chair of the New Zealand US Council and director of several diplomatic training programs. Her remarkable career spans over 40 years in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, with highlights including her roles as ambassador to Washington and Paris and as permanent representative at the United Nations in New York. Rosemary was also a crown negotiator for the Treaty of Waitangi Settlement Process, educated at Canterbury University and the London School of Economics. We're very privileged to have her insights tonight. Welcome, Rosemary Dunn. Tentacles or tentacles or tentacles and katoa, no, my high master tentacle. Thank you to Nashi and Dan for bringing us all together tonight. What a gathering. Great to see so many friends and colleagues in the audience. And the perfect time as we wait for a new government to work out together what we should be expecting our next foreign minister to be defending us from, assuming God has other priorities. <laughs> I think the topic tonight would be one that Terence would have relished. I can imagine him ripping into this with his sharp wit and enthusiasm. You know, I, I often think of an exchange that I was the only witness to between Terence and another peer, another senior diplomat, but one with a less expansive worldview. And the latter person, who shall be nameless, said, voice tripping with sarcasm to Terence. Of course, the trouble with you, Terence, is that the New Zealand stage was always too small for you. To which Terence, to my delight, replies with emphasis, and thank God for that. Thank God for that. Can't you just hear it? I relate the exchange because it worries me that we've been as a country to be losing some of that global literacy and confidence that Terence personified. Perhaps the pandemic has taken a dent in our confidence, and then there's always a tendency for a small island country, not closely tethered to the wider world, to retreat into a self-satisfied and self-deluding mindset. And I think there are strains of that self-delusion in our insistence on our independent foreign policy. It's become a mantra, been a mantra for such a long time. But what does it really mean? Why is it different from the foreign policy of any other country putting its national interests first? 
I wish Malcolm McKinnon were here. I could uh, congratulate him, but maybe through John, for the 1993 study that he made of independence in New Zealand foreign policy, relating it back to its origins when it was first promoted by the first Labour government in the 1930s. At that time, an understandable effort to assert nationhood. But as Malcolm points out, by the 1980s, it had become conflated with the anti-nuclear policy. And as he wrote, it's, it's, the term had become opaque and its historical origins and meaning had been obscured. I would say that that obscurity still remains today. If you listen, nobody ever defines our independent foreign policy. It's only negatively defined by what it isn't. As an example, uh, former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, in one of her foreign policy speeches, and I'll quote it, she said, Our independent foreign policy has never meant that we pursue our objectives on our own. Well, Minister Mahuta had another crack at it in May this year, and she said, Being independent does not mean acting independently. So, what does it mean? <laughs> No, I know it's always easier to criticize and question than to solve a problem. So earlier this year, I challenged myself to think, well, how would I define positively what I think our independent New Zealand foreign policy stands for? I'm sure you can improve on this, but what I came up with was that we base our foreign policy decisions on international law, on the UN Charter, on our national values of fairness and equity, that we assess every situation objectively and weigh up all the policy options, that we are open to the um, open to the case of others to respect their interests, and that we act consistently and as a reliable partner. Now I, I hope that that's how other countries, and I know there are a number of other countries represented here tonight, which is wonderful. I hope that's how you see us. But it's possible that we also confuse you by talking about our independence without really defining it. Now, up until now, we've been able to inhabit with this cloak of independence a sort of a comfortable grey zone where we've never really been challenged on, on this. But unfortunately, the world seems to be becoming a lot more black and white than it is grey, which leads me on to the second question that our panel has been asked to address, and that is the global shifts in policy. Okay, here a bit of unsolicited praise for the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade latest strategic assessment navigating a shifting world, which I'm sure many of you have looked at and would know that they identified three big shifts. The first from uh, role to power, the second from economic relationships to a focus on security relationships, and the third from efficiency uh, to resilience. Well, I think you could say that the first of those two are possibly negative for New Zealand, as we uh, obviously rely as a smaller country on international rule of law, we're seeing it deliberately undermined in ways that can only make us more vulnerable. And secondly, the shift in focus from economic to security relationships risks us relegating ourselves to the sidelines unless, as a country, we're more prepared than we often have been to invest in our security and our defense capabilities. 
which brings me on to the question of Auckland. And up until now, we know that our politicians have been very careful not to thought to stay well clear of even the non-nuclear dimensions of that. And in addressing this question of why AUKUS um, and, and why we are where we are, I'd like to quote the late Alan Gingell, the, a res much respected voice on international affairs for Australia. And he neatly summed up the profound difference of worldview between Australia and New Zealand. He said Australia had always felt itself to be economically strong, but strategically insecure, whereas New Zealand felt strategically secure, but economically insecure. I think you could say that now New Zealand is probably both economically insecure and strategically insecure. So, getting that, um, actually, that worked perfectly because I don't really intend to address the last question, which is can we further leverage our identity as a non nuclear? non-nuclear identity. And I actually want to toss this question on to uh, my fellow panelists because I'm not even sure that we ever have really been able to leverage our anti-nuclear identity, except in places where it hasn't really directly delivered the goods for us. Anyway, I'm sure that's something I mean that you totally disagree with. So to conclude, I'll end where I began with the title from, from whom or from what uh, should our next foreign minister be defending us? Well, there's no shortage of, of threats coming at us from the outside world, but most of them we really can't do much about. What our next foreign minister can do something about, and hopefully, is being really active and present in our Indo-Pacific region and globally to ensure that New Zealand retains its relevance and that we retain our value and to our significant others. That's it for me. Thank you very much for your insights. Um, our next speaker is uh, Dan O'Brien. Uh, who is a co-founder of Diplosphere and has taken an active role in Diplosphere for over seven years, supporting concepts, talks, and creating articles and podcasts like Citrus Stack. I'm sure you all um, know what I'm talking about. Until recently, Dan helped build cloud computing giant Amazon Web Services startup set from New Zealand into a successful business. As venture capital lately helped New Zealand entrepreneurs build, grow, and go global for over five years with tech like artificial intelligence. Dan is also Terence O'Brien's son and has had an active interest in foreign policy since a young age. Dan has an MBA from Inter Business School and a Bachelor of Science from Canterbury University. Please be assured he's not going to talk about artificial intelligence. <laughs> Tonight, at least after night. Please welcome Danny. Matthew, and as you can see, I'm a little bit of an outsider here today. Um, so, Tenakoto Katoa, um, I'm going to talk about New Zealand, 
how New Zealand should be careful when adopting the language of hard power and national security as in recent government publications. My comments throughout relate to foreign policy. In doing so, I hope to address some of today's uh, topics in the globe. In the interest of brevity, I do not explicitly acknowledge the terms of phrase or from my father, but safe to say there are quite a few in here. So first, what are the global shifts that our policy needs to adapt to? A few recent perspectives. US national security advisor Jake Sullivan described a new period of competition in an age of interdependence and transnational challenges. MFAT describes from rules shifts like from rules to power, economics to security, efficiency to resilience. Others talk of the unipolar moment lasting from 1990 through to 2017, being now firmly in the rearview mirror. Looking forward, the world's five, five largest economies in 2050 are set to be China, the United States, India, Indonesia, and Germany. At the same time, global temperatures are expected to rise by more than 1.5 degrees. And for our Pacific Island neighbors, this is their overarching concern. Climate change is a very real security concern. We also live at the age, and I am going to mention AI for a second here, at, 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 at the age of the dawn of artificial general intelligence, uh, when machine intelligence will equal or surpass our human own. I did not believe this until last year, but it's certainly in my perspective on the horizon, and many experts out there are saying it. It's an outstanding advance. So turning to our foreign policy, successive governments over the years have laid claim to an independent New Zealand foreign policy. The practical day-to-day -day truth in such a claim is difficult to identify. What defines independent foreign policy? Is it a pattern of behavior? Or does it too depend on some captivating uh, decision? For many New Zealanders, their country's non-nuclear policy proclaimed by law in the 1980s represents a supreme example of the latter. It has had and still has international impact. It earned us and continues to earn us a respect for an independent foreign policy, though it gets only fleeting mentions in official documents today. And what of the rule, rules-based order much spoken of? The world owes a considerable debt to the United States for the enlightened effort and imagination devoted during the 20th century to create a global-based rules order. It allows coalitions amongst like-minded to promote collective interests, or for small nations to resist inconsiderate pressures from the powerful. Successive New Zealand governments have committed to good global citizenship. In an era now when the international pecking order is changing, it is logical that emerging leaders be entitled to equality in management of the international institutions like the United Nations, the IMF, the WTO, the World Bank, that provide bedrock for the international rules-based system. That comprises the essential 21st century challenge. So why do I speak about language? Well, as it presently stands, recent government publications have little to say about this challenge. New Zealand's national security strategy, born in response to the Christchurch terror tragedy and the Royal Commission of Inquiry, is all about protecting New Zealand, New Zealand from threats. The remit is wide and includes 12 core national security issues like cyber, maritime security, terrorism, disinformation, organized crime, and others, which are clearly security issues. 
but also one at the top of the bulleted list in the document, which crosses over into foreign policy, that is strategic competition and the rules-based international system. Strategic competition comes up 30 times, and the term rules-based international order comes up 26 times, even more, in fact, than the NFAST strategy document released earlier in the year. It states, for instance, the rules-based system is under sustained pressure from several sources. And in our region, only one great power is being singled out as being asserted, China, whilst ignoring other actions which could be perceived as asserted by others. The AUKUS agreement itself, or new military basing sites being good examples. Indeed, the past several decades during the so-called unipolar moment was strategically benign, that's the phrase in the document, for some regions, such as our own, but not for others, especially for those on the pointy end of concepts like the global war on terror. The Middle East suffers from much foreign intervention. With Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we see yet another region experiencing untold suffering. The latter region is called out in the documents, the former is not. Only pointing out the exceptional behavior of one great power is not really even-handed. Why does even-handedness even matter? Even-handedness in foreign policy is important, especially in the new and complex age of modern great power rivalry, as the US and China adjust to China's emergence. Where necessary, the installation provided by soft powers, soft power, for example, allows New Zealand to draw daylight from bye-bye's partners in relation to China when the national interest is judged to be better served by a different approach. New Zealand interests identify clearly with the principle of equality of responsibilities and obligations between major powers as the basis for an inclusive international system. That is a level playing field for big and small countries alike. Recently, in other regions, New Zealand has drawn daylight from bye-bye's partners, New Zealand being the only member of that arrangement to vote for a humanitarian resolution which passed calling for an immediate, durable, and sustained humanitarian truce, leading to a cessation of hostilities in Gaza at the United Nations General Assembly last week, alongside some partners like from the Pacific, like Indonesia, but not others, for instance, like Fiji. And in 2003, New Zealand and Canada declined to participate in the US-UK invasion of Iraq. In our region too, New Zealand should be open to acting with like-minded others, which may involve drawing distance from New Zealand's traditional mainstays and keeping different company at different time on different issues. Now, rather than drawing daylight, the AUKUS agreement closes ranks. New Zealand's anti-nuclear policy notwithstanding, Kurt Campbell, the White House's senior advisor on Asian affairs, earlier this year stated there was an opportunity to collaborate on cutting-edge technologies, and this would be led by the White House. At the time, at times of intense great power rivalry, it should be no surprise that information shared by the great power member of an intelligence sharing agreement should reflect its compulsive priority. Today, that is a robust rivalry with China. In the past, it was Islamic terrorism, and that led to a government blind spot when it came to, the, to white supremacist terrorism, according to some in the New Zealand Muslim community. As the founder of the CIA, Alan Dulles said, intelligence is the servant, not the master on foreign policy. Have we learned that lesson? He can say have we learned that lesson, that's what I'm, I'm saying. In sum, it is admirable that officialdom has its eyes wide open to the changing world in great power rivalry with a bevy of recent publications. The importance of partnerships and readiness to contribute, especially in our Pacific region, comes through. 
To this end, a small professional defense force constitutes a real New Zealand national asset. But given that soft power is New Zealand's sole attribute when cultivating trust and opportunity diplomatically with all the new international partners, it seems counterintuitive to wait so much, so to, to so wait, rather, New Zealand institutional arrangements for the conduct of important external relations along the lines of a national security state model. The defining characteristics of the national security state combine a staunch threat mentality with a firm conviction about the utility of hard power. Balance of power thinking sits uneasily alongside the language of diplomacy, and I'm nearly done, really close, and the language of reconciliation. The Treaty of Waitangi places reconciliation at the center of our democracy, and in the wake of an election, our newly elected members should take to heart the victim. All foreign policy starts at home. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. Um, a two-time New Zealand ambassador to China, John McKinnon is the chair of the New Zealand China Council. Educated at Victoria University in Wellington and at the London School of Economics, John's extensive experience in New Zealand foreign service includes key roles from Beijing to Washington and New York um, when New Zealand was serving a term at the UN Security Council. He has also held the role of Secretary of Defense. Currently, he's also a senior fellow at Victoria University Center for Strategic Studies. Please welcome John McKinnon. Well, Kia Tata, and thank you, Matty, for that welcome, and uh, promise to and many other distinguished guests. I'm also alarmed to see a large number of people I know, because I'm always worried when anybody in the audience knows a little bit more about what I'm going to talk about than I do myself. But I suspect all of you are in that one or two percent of the population which actually takes an interest in foreign policy, and maybe it even influenced what you did on the 14th of October. Who knows? Uh, so I do, you know, seek your forgiveness if I say things which some of you might have heard before and, uh, and say them in a way which may or may not be music to your ears. I'm going to talk about, uh, as you might infer from the CV that maybe just gave you a lot about the US-China relationship and about New Zealand's relations with China, and then say a little bit about independent foreign policy, although Rosemary has uh, stolen a little bit of my thunder there. Uh, but on the New Zealand's relations with China, I want to focus on that because it does seem to me to be one of the key issues which is going to face us and face a new government over the, over the, uh, the next few years, or in fact, even longer than that. Now, there's a friend of mine once said, you may not be interested in the US-China relationship but the US-China relationship is interested in you. And that is actually, in a sense, the problem that we have as a country in this part of the world, navigating our way through the fact that there are a variety of views about China, there's a variety of views about how we should connect with China. Somehow or other, we have to figure out what we should be doing with that. Now, what I'd like to suggest is that there are sort of three major areas where we need to be connect with and able to talk with China. The first clearly is that it's a major economic and commercial partner 
of this country. Uh, we do very well in China. China does very well in New Zealand. It's a mutual, uh, mutually beneficial relationship. And we are not alone in that. Uh, the absolutely reliable National Party policy document says that 142 countries have as their principal economic partner China. So we are not alone in finding that China is a big part of our world. And it's scarcely surprising, given the size of the country, the size of its population, 1.4 billion, the fact that it's got a burgeoning middle class, and that basically there are many people there who are interested in buying the goods and the services that this country produces, and vice versa. Now, the size thing is always a challenge to figure out. Uh, a colleague of mine is visiting a town called Virgil in Shandong province, which frankly I've never heard of, and probably I suspect most of you haven't heard of. It has a population of only 5 million, <laughs> in other words, the same as our country. And it's just trying to get your head around those figures, which makes it very difficult to figure out how we can connect, and yet we have been very successful in doing so. And I think that's something we can take uh, pride in and be very pleased with the way both our trade agreements were negotiated, but how we've been able to take advantage of those uh, in, in the years that come. So that's a big part of it. But at the end of the day, it's because China itself is a very large economy. And although there's a lot of talk now about diversification and, and finding different markets and spreading one's risk, things which I think most businesses in New Zealand do automatically anyway, the fact is that even if the percentage of our exports to China, which I think currently stands at sort of 32% or something, dropped down to 25, which would be a significant drop, it would still be a major, major partner for us. And I think it will be so into the foreseeable future. And even that renowned um, document out of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, which Rosemary quoted and which Dan castigated, does say that in the future, because of price premiums, it's likely that China will continue to take a significant portion of our exports over the next decade or so. So to impact the leads of the well, then it has to be true. I say that as an extinct factor, so I mean, you can take that anyway. Right. Um, secondly, of course, uh, China is a major player in regional affairs and in global affairs. It's hard to think of any issue that concerns us, whether that's climate change, whether it's things happening in the South Pacific, the Antarctica, whether it's even, even in the Middle East these days, China's getting a bit involved there, that the voice of China will not be important and relevant. And it's important for us to understand what they think, what they say, equally for them to understand how we approach these issues. And that, again, I do not see it as going away. China is, uh, if it's not, it's certainly one of the largest economies of the world. It's a permanent member of the United Nations. It's got a stake in all sorts of different, uh, different regions and organizations. We need to be able to connect with it. The third area, though, is the one which, of course, is the more difficult one. China, as all of you who have visited will know, is a country which is very different from this country. And that's not just because it's got 1.4 billion people as opposed to 5 million, uh, but just because of its history, its background, and everything that goes up to make what China is, but especially the political, legal, and social organization. So it's not surprising that there are going to be issues on which we have very, very distinctly different points of view and on which we have to register our point of view with China, which we do, 
and which China, of course, has to share its views on things with us. And there are going to be many of those issues on which we actually do not agree. Now, the list of those is familiar. It's been repeated many times by, by ministers, whether it's to do with Xinjiang or Tibet or Hong Kong or the Taiwan Straits, the South China Sea. It's basically a case of what happens within China, but also things that China does internationally, which we may have some issues with. But again, I would say we need to be able to communicate our views to China to hear their back and response, and they need to understand what animates us, and we need to understand what animates them. It's not always easy. I've done some of these discussions myself, and it's not particularly easy. I wouldn't say it's the greatest task I've ever performed as a diplomat, but you have to be able to share views with countries which don't agree with you. That's one of the key elements of international relations. It's one of the key elements which any government of this country has to be able to confront it, has to be able to, to deal with. So, right, I'll speed up quickly and talk very quickly about the independent foreign policy, which uh, Rosemary and Dan have already spoken about. What I want to say under that heading is simply that we have to figure these things out for ourselves. In the past, I've said we should look at what's happening in Japan and Korea and ASEAN and Australia and the US and so on, and I think that's still worthwhile. But we cannot franchise our decision-making to those countries. We still have to figure out how we should connect with China and how we should relate to it. And so our own, uh, in a sense, the, the independence of that foreign policy phrase, and like Rose and I find it a little bit that's become a little bit of a sort of mantra now. It's, it can cover almost any meaning that you'd like to, to give it. it. One of the meanings it has for me is to say, we should be doing this for ourselves. We have to bring these things out for ourselves. Surprise, surprise, that means you need to have people such as you know, your speaker today who actually understand some of these things and can provide advice to incoming governments or otherwise. Thank you very much. very much, John. Um, our next speaker is Honorable Tim Broder. He, uh, Tim served as New Zealand's ambassador to the United States from 2015 to 2018. Prior to that, he held key roles under Sir John Key's government, including Minister of Trade and Minister of Climate Change. His earlier career served him as New Zealand ambassador to Indonesia and the WTO and as chief negotiator in critical trade negotiations like the Uruguay round. We're looking forward to forward to Mr. Tim's uh, insights tonight. Please welcome. I don't think the new government has yet banned the use of these phrases from the old <laughs> Um, and uh, given your uh, I'll now concentrate largely on English, uh, having 
guilt of the Tereo and French aspects of my presentation. <laughs> First of all, I was going to start with exactly the comment John started. I do recognize that I could at least 10 to 15 people in this audience who are at least as well qualified as any of us, and we could be sitting listening to them. So I want to acknowledge that uh, to you personally. So a certain sense of humility, I think, is required from all of us on this side in talking to you an audience that does contain a lot of extremely well-informed people. Um, I'm going to plunge directly into the independent foreign policy uh, question of what it means. I think Rosemary summed it up exactly correctly. It's historical origins, although I have read Michael Lasseter deeper beyond the, uh, the, the nuclear uh, disruption over our ANZUS relationship with the United States and Australia. But that's certainly where it came from. And I had a front seat to that because I was then the Ministry of Foreign Affairs advisor in David Long's office. It wasn't a political position, it's a career position, and saw the whole thing spin completely out of control. I have no time to recount the history of that, which I saw upfront and personal, but that's where it came from. But I think it has evolved into um, almost exactly what John said, a capacity, I'm paraphrasing your words, John, not I didn't write them down, but I don't think I'm doing any violence to your perspective. It's a willingness to look at any large issue that faces us in terms of our external interests, in terms of our own interests, and make an appropriate judgment. Normally, I wouldn't say in public a comment made by a distinguished New Zealand media in private, but I'm certain that she would have no problem with me revealing this because I had this, this exact discussion recently with Helen Clark. And I take I put to her the view that there were sort of two different meanings in the last 15, 20 years to the term independent foreign policy. One is on the extreme left, which is a synonym for anti-Americanism. And the other shared, I believe, by the center-left and the center-right of New Zealand thinking is on a major, major issue, we will look independently at the realities we see before us. We would not go, for example, in an earlier age to what Mickey Savage said in 1939, where Britain goes, we go. But we will look independently at the situation and try and calculate what we should do as a very small country with our own interests. And Helen and I both agreed that 95%, metaphorically speaking, of such cases, we would go with our traditional friends because we would tend to see the issue from the same perspective. But maybe on one or two issues, we might nuance it in a different way. And I can see right now one of those situations is with respect to our relationship with China, where there is no question that there is massive pressure on New Zealand, the past government and the future government led by Chris Luxon, to adopt essentially a, you're either with us, the United States, or you're with China and you can't sit in the middle. And I've had two recent trips in the last uh, three weeks, I've spent 10 days in China, I've met with three Chinese ministers, and then I went to Taipei and I met uh, the president of Taiwan, uh, Catherine Tai. I know her from the past because she used to be a US, uh, she used to be a trade lawyer and knew me from my days in the WTO. 
And there is huge confusion, both in Beijing and Taiwan, about where New Zealand stands on this issue. Constant questions. How can you maintain an independent position given the pressure on you? Now, I'm not going to, to try and analyze that because I don't represent the National Party today. I don't have any, I'm not have any advisory role for the National Party. I'm just me speaking on the basis of how I see the world. But that is, that is what I think is an independent foreign policy. And the very first thing that John Key asked me to do in 2006 or seven, when he replaced Don Brash as the leader of the opposition, was to write a paper on foreign policy, which I did. It's called the External Strategies paper. The main objective of which was to dump the ridiculous previous position of the National Party, gone by lunchtime, going back into the ANZUS full board, as if this was something that could be done anything without without a bipartisan support behind it. Uh, as, as one of the previous speakers, I think it was Dan, made the point, all foreign policy starts at home with domestic policy. And without a domestic strong constituency, a foreign policy simply doesn't exist in any practical sense. So I think we are at a at a a really really delicate uh, period in international affairs. I was looking through uh, my library uh, just before I came here and looked at books that tell the title. So you know we had 1990s, we had Fukuyama, the end of history. The whole world is converging on liberal democracy. We were working to a one rule system. And you had Baldwin writing a book called Great Convergence. And then it started to shift. One of my favorite public intellectuals, uh, Robert Kagan, published a book in 2018 called The Jungle Grows Back. Very perceptive book, analyzing the beginning of the decline towards globalization and support thereof. And then more recently, we've seen another great public intellectual mind who publishes an extraordinary book, uh, The Crisis Facing Democratic Capitalism, uh, which is a dark, dark book, indeed, but extraordinarily well argued. So I think we are, ladies and gentlemen, I am happy to follow up on the question, but I think the new government, I mean, whoever's the foreign minister, the reality is always the same. The prime minister is the real foreign minister of every government, even if they are, Mr. Bolger, I'm sure, coming from the farming community, you were deeply reluctant to accept that role, but it was forced on you in the end, you know. So that is the reality. Uh, Chris Luxon is the real foreign minister, whoever between the obvious candidates uh, gets the formal nod. So we'll wait and see, but I think they face an unusually difficult situation because what I mean, none of us can tell the future. I'm just going to stop now. Don't worry. Don't need to ring the bell. <laughs> none of us can read the future. And as that brilliant Lebanese-American intellectual, Nassim Daleh, put it, you know, it turns out the most important global events are foreseen by precisely nobody. I could give you plenty of examples of, of his observation. But I think we're in a very dangerous situation. We've got a proxy war going on in Europe. We've got the possibility of something far larger than the Israel versus Hamas fight developing out of the situation in the Middle East. And we have a breakdown in China-US relations on top of it. 
So ladies and gentlemen, this, this is really a very difficult set of currents and eventually everything does wash up on our shores in Aotearoa, no matter how distant and secure New Zealand is, may feel. very much. We have a tapestry of perspectives and I'm so glad to have some balance to these very complex issues. Uh, now we're going to open the floor to take questions. Um, we wanted to stimulate a crisp focus exchange. For that, I encourage three things, please. First, uh, contribution as a comment or question to the panel as a whole or to an identified panelist. Each participant from the floor has up to one minute and a half for contribution so that we, everybody gets a chance. And please state name and any affiliation and wait for the microphone for speaking. So we're going to start taking questions. Yes, please, please wait for the microphone. Uh, Liz Holgrove, uh, Vice Chancellor in the last century, uh, <laughs> and also involved uh, at the Science Management Institute of National Affairs, and of course, well known as the Center of Strategic Studies. Um, I'd just like uh, any member of the panel who wishes to, to comment on the Australian uh, situation vis a vis China. Now, we all know that Mr. Albanese is going to be visiting Joe Biden and then will visit Beijing immediately afterwards. And Beijing seems to have softened its attitude towards Australia recently. Some of the trade measures that were taken, which looked like overkill to many of us, particularly, for example, in relation to things like wine, have clearly been changed. Um, is there any chance of a further rapprochement there that would help us all? Thank you. It's, to whom is your question directed? Oh, well, um, perhaps Tim Grosser and with uh, John's comment as well. Thank you. This is a very, very important question. Uh, I, I, uh, First of all, you know, I, I, I remember um, Wang Shui came to see me when I was ambassador in Washington at the start of Trump's unilateral declaration of travels. Wang Shui is the vice minister of commerce, but in reality, he's China's top trade negotiator, and he and I have known each other. And he came to get my views on what on earth China should do in response. And I'll keep that conversation private, but what I think has happened is that the extraordinary Trump policy created the conditions for world warrior diplomacy. World warrior diplomacy, which is what the Australians are suffering from, is not to be considered a separate matter from what Trump did when talking about, you remember how he calls this, China. China, as if it's some vast evil empire that we shouldn't have anything to do with. And 
I think the Wolf Warriors got the upper hand. The people that I'm used to dealing with, people like Minister Xiejianhua, I spent two hours with him two weeks ago in Beijing, talking about climate change. Um, totally practical. People like Wang like Wang Yi, once again China's foreign minister, the person that I negotiated a set of understandings politically with when I was the trade minister when he was responsible for cross-straits relations to set up a completely comprehensive FTA with Taiwan. So those people are still there in, in the same positions. They're completely practical. And, and you can work with them, provided you recognize some basic red lines. They're still there. But the Wolf Warrior syndrome was essentially, I think, a reaction to what the United States did initially under President Trump. Now, I can see clear signs of an adjustment in Chinese policy, and I can see less clear signs from some very important American personality. You know, I, would have, I wouldn't have disagreed with a single word Gavin Newsom, the governor of the most important state in the United States, California, said during his meeting about four or five days ago with President Xi, in which he basically said the idea of decoupling is completely insane. Um, I wouldn't disagree with some less clear statements made by John Kerry in climate change when he recognized the total absurdity of trying to deal with climate change without US and China working together. So, and, I, and given that uh, Australian Prime Minister is on his way to Beijing, and there's been clear signal as the Australian system has dropped the WTO case on, um, was it wine or barley? I forgot which of the two it was, but whichever it was, it was really a, a political statement. So I can see that there's been some adjustments in Chinese policy. Um, they're rather fresh, so we shouldn't draw too long a bow at this stage, but I think we can see the beginnings of some rationality. And for the New Zealand government, the next government, I mean, we've just got to continue to be extremely nimble, but this gentleman, having been ambassador twice, um, has greater depth in this subject than me, so I'll pass it. But anyway, um, I, I would just add one comment, which is one of the things you learn as a very junior diplomat is never to comment on the foreign relations of the third country. Um, so I will stick to that. But I will say that our relationship with Australia is important, our relationship with China is important. I think there are signs that their bilateral relationship is improving, and I think that's important to the work. Thank you, John. Rosemary, would you like to add comments? Well, just a really brief one to pick up um, on the tilt point about the region years, you know, I left my role in Ambassador Lee now just over a year ago. But in that four years from 2018 to 2022, it was remarkable how that hostility towards China became just almost, it seemed, irreversible. So I agree that this is a, this is a really difficult um Scenario, I don't know how we get out of that, especially with the way that the, the hard right in the, in the past and the Trumpies are viewing China. Gentlemen, there, please. Mike Smith, my name, I'm from the Baby Society. Um, I don't want to comment on the, uh, the 
mentions that have been mentioned, particularly uh, like-minded uh, countries, uh, which seem to be limited to a, a, a rather small group. Um, some time ago, uh, and and what I want to take a big one, particularly as John, is is it time we started to explore more about countries that don't think like us? Um, some not long ago, I interviewed uh, Ambassador Wong Shalom for the Bayesian Society um, on, and I asked him to talk about China's values because I think what we talk a lot about our values. I'm not sure that we really understand very well what China's values are. And it was interesting when uh, Chris Hopkins visited uh, China, Xi Jinping offered friendship. And in terms of China's values, that's particularly important. And I was a bit disappointed that it didn't seem to be reciprocated. So uh, when we talk about uh, 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 common values or like-minded values, um, I don't recognize a lot of uh, values that I hear from the United States. It's frozen, it's just uh, announced. I think personally, there's a great deal more to be said for Chinese values than we would actually appreciate. So, Doc, for your comment. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not quite sure why I'm drawing that to explore it. Um, I mean, I would go back to one of the comments I, I, I made, or if I did the paper, it was sitting in my notes, which is I think we, we, we always, as a country, who is not a country which disposes of a lot of hard power. We have to be very uh, thoughtful and careful about who it is that we associate with and what we do. But basically, every relationship for us is important. And how we nurture those relationships is important, whether it's with the United States, whether it's China, whether it's Australia, whoever. We have to find ways of connecting with them, and we have to find ways of minimizing differences, and we have to find ways of maximizing common points. And that would apply to China as well as to any other country. Uh, now, as I said in, the, in my presentation, there are many issues on which we disagree with China, but there are many others on which we agree. And that's going to be the case for the foreseeable future. So I, I welcome your sentiment, but in a sense, it's a, it's a work in progress that I always will be. I just balance also just a little bit, you know, the value of the importance to us still of the values that the US uh, stands up for and represents. It's been acknowledged earlier of the, I think, by Dan, you know, the great um, success really of the 20th century in establishing the international law. And the US is still very deliberately trying to support that in ways that are pretty important to us. So, yeah, I, I think we also need to remember, although sometimes the news coming out of the U.S. seems to be predominantly negative, uh, there's a whole lot of good stuff in there too, and their values and the are still way more akin to ours than anybody else's much up to Australia. Quick comment, because I used the word like-minded, so I just want to say quickly, uh, and that was from Terence's, uh, one of his talks, by the way. Um, and I think what he was meaning uh, was not necessarily the traditional partners, in fact, it was Know, uh, something quite different. And the example I gave with the resolution two weeks ago, we had countries like Indonesia and Norway, for instance, another small uh, democracy who voted for that resolution. But that's the example you're talking about when you're talking about like minded on an issue, on a fair issue, 
basis in many examples. Uh, so that was just a bit of clarification on what I meant by like minded. For more diversity from people asking questions. So I'm just going to take the gentleman that um, um, please uh, feel free. Um, yes, please. Do you have any questions, especially for from our brilliant students? Yes, I just have a, a, a short question. Um, I noticed with the presentations from our distinguished panelists, there was just passing reference to August. I think that Rosemary was about to say that more, but then, uh, I would like to hear a bit more about their views on New Zealand's involvement. And I'd like to hear from Dan, because I have a feeling that this father would have had strong views on <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, uh, it's difficult for me to be the interpreter of, of my father uh, on this subject. I mean, I think that the general um, general thing that would, would have been quite uh, cautious about. August because effectively it's a it's a hard hard power agreement and and dad uh, should say my father my mom's told me or Terence uh, my father Terence um, he he stressed that as we, we don't have much hard power we have obviously a, a, a defense force which is a national asset but our main our contribution is through soft power and um, in an agreement like August we are being drawn into the politics of hard power which is um, for us going to be perhaps muffling our voice, if anything. Uh, and I think earlier, just a, a comment I that came up, um, there were some questions about like the, the, the what, what soft power give us or what does a non-nuclear uh, sort of stance give us? So, I mean, I can talk from experience and Jim Bolger's in the room too, that in the first security council, my experience as a son, uh, in the first experience, uh, the New Zealand Security Council did in 1992 was a large part uh, a function of our independent foreign policy that we don't, uh, it wasn't our, our claim, it's what we did in the 1980s. And Jim Bolger obviously um, made it a cross partisan um, uh, situation, both the Labour and National Party confirming that stance. Uh, and that helped us win votes in places like Africa. This is what Terence talked about in, in some of his uh, discussions. So there are real tangible benefits in the soft power. It's not just a fluffy thing that doesn't deliver results. It can. Obviously, uh, it will be on a case-by-case -case basis. But yeah, I think hopefully that answers the question. To look at real benefits in the multilateral universe, but I'd be hard for it finding real benefits beyond that. Yeah. So I'd like a question from um, a woman or something, somebody who feels like a woman. Sorry, because I'm concerned about diversity. So, um, um, yes, please. Yeah. If you sometimes depend on the question. Hi, uh, my name is Kevin Zane. I'm the local, winning the chance community, winning the chance committee, local committee, and I run the community newspaper. And home voice. Uh, I just thought, thought some uh, questions, probably for John. Uh, uh, yeah. um, before uh, Michael here, uh, New Zealand uh, involved uh, August, but I heard that the New Zealand will be trying to involve the NATO to come to Asia. So I understand that it's, we, we can't choose the echoes or the NATO. That means it will be, we will enjoy this more aligned. As a, a line means uh, will be the enemy in the future. 
So that means so we just want a very difficult situation for New Zealand to balance America or, the, or China. So if we in New Zealand, if we choose to some island, like the defense island, uh, 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 so how can we balance as uh, not to involve uh, uh, power country like the United States and the China uh, compare each other. For example, maybe maybe very soon, so uh, uh, and the China Sea and Taiwan, if you've got a how can we stand the balance? So this world since 2017, the uh, United changed the policy, looking white and black. And more and more like a cold war. So how can we stand the balance? Thank you. John, I will ask you the question. Well, thank you. Uh, there's quite a lot contained in that question. Um, I'll just make well, one comment, which is to again to refer to something that I was saying, and I think in any of these issues uh, which arise in the, in the future, and like many people, I refuse to comment on hypothetical issues. Uh, we would have to think carefully about what our response would be. And there'd be a number of factors which would be in play there. And one would be links with other countries. One would be a generalized aversion to resolving um, their issues by force. There would be a whole range of factors, which I imagine if an issue came before the government, which you know, may or may not be announced tomorrow, uh, would be sitting in front of them in terms of making decisions. But I would also be of the view uh, that we, and I think others on this panel might be too, that we should, you know, we, we don't need to rush into choosing sides ahead of having to do so. And, and for as long as we can continue to maintain those relationships, we should do so. And that means you know, with China, with the United States, with Australia, with Japan, with everybody else, it's difficult, but I think that's what we have to be able to do. So I, I, I'm sorry, it's probably not answering your question directly, but those are the factors I think that will come into play. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, please, and then lady at the back. Hello, my name is Sarah Um I'm an ex ambassador and um, I currently work in the global trade. And I want to ask the question of personal capacity, um, which is also informed by the fact that um, my mother's partner was saying. Uh, Father Chief of NATO and um, Chief of Defense in the UK, which is about the mix between hard power and soft power. Now, um, as all of those speakers have talked about, you know, there's lots of changes in the world, which have meant that military capacity is um, actually more important than it has been in a long time. And I did go to a previous NZIA discussion about before the election, where one party, who I won't name, said that we should take all weapons away from the defense forces when they do its uh, disaster response and fishing protection. Um, so my question is, in terms of foreign policy and hard power, I think there's going to have to be some form of um, change in the mix um, between hard and soft power. I just wondered how you and the panel would advise um, an incoming minister around that shift. Thank you. I think I already put my nail of my flag up there and said that it would have to be immensely worth being relegated to irrelevance uh, to maintain value for our partners in that and most tourism that security sphere that we would have to face up to against in more than that sector. 
Just to reiterate that the defense force is a real uh, asset for New Zealand and should conti continue. I think uh, Terence talked about this quite a bit, that can be contributing to these uh, operations as, as required through. Well, actually, when it comes to New Zealand's hard power, which by definition is our armed forces, they themselves are expression of our soft power. I mean, we deploy our special forces in a number of operations, largely through the political messaging that 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 is accompanies that process. So, I mean, New Zealand's contribution to the hard power and military sense compared with the United States and Australia is so tiny that it really is an expression of political support for objectives. There's one exception to what I said, and that is the exception that you mentioned, Dan, around relief operations in the Pacific countries, where I've heard very senior Australians say that New Zealand armed forces are remarkably effective in those situations. Um, actually very largely because of the strong Polynesian um, element in those armed forces. So they are uh, particularly effective in those micro-political management situations. But when we're talking about you know, our contribution in Afghanistan, it's really just a question of adding an element, a tiny little element of hard power to the soft power position of political support for that um, operation, however unwise that might appear in reality. We have five more minutes and being wary of um, time because we have other couple, I mean some of our speakers have other commitments. I will take this order and then I will come to you. Please wait for the microphone. Evening <laughs> all. I was intrigued that the panel which uh deeply entrenched in foreign policy from New Zealand. Nobody mentioned the biggest country in the world, India. And I would have thought that they were one of the countries which should be engaging with more vigorously, be part of understanding where they are, because they're going to get more and more influential. I mean, you, you can see what's happening as far as the world is concerned. I mean, Europe before World War II was the dominant international power. Now move across to the United States after World War II. Uh, it is now going to move from the United States uh, to China and from China to India. Why do I say that? Because China has negative population growth, it's in decline in terms of population, all of that. And I was surprised that we didn't put some folks on that. And then I look at the vast continent of Africa, and again, it doesn't come up anywhere. Look at the resources that Nigeria has, the capacity it has. Start to think about what connections we should be developing there, rather than really just going around the same old patch. I, I'd encourage people to think a little more. Thank you. Well, I mean, I think um, I, I, I mean, I don't think any of us would disagree with a single word you said. And I think there's a strong bipartisan uh, commitment informally the, within the Labour Party and within the National Party of exactly the need now to go by links. But as you know, um, I mean, I try like hell to try and 
get some, some runs on the board with India. Started an FTA which went absolutely nowhere. India then was part of ASEP, the Regional Conference Economic Partnership Agreement, which is based around the ASEAN relationships with a number of countries. And then they so upset the ASEAN countries that that negotiation was terminated and India stayed out of it. So I could not see how anyone could disagree with your central thesis. India is going to be vastly more involved in international affairs in the next 20 to 30 years. But it is very difficult in terms of our economic relationship with them to advance when they're still stuck in this dichotomy between the Gandhian concept of self-sufficiency and their actual role in the global economy. And I don't think that's going to be resolved, that contradiction, anytime soon. But I think the previous government did exactly the right thing by upping their game in India. And I have a certain understanding that Chris Luxon's government will carry that on. And we'll see where it gets us. Of course, on the political and military level, I mean, this is very, very complicated. This is not my area of expertise, so I don't really want to comment on, on that. But the, the sheer um, oddity of, you know, the BRICS concept implies some type of warm cooperative relationship between India and China, and then India's actions in other forms, which apply the exact opposite. There's a lot of contradictions that have to be resolved over the long term, but absolutely, I'm sure, I mean, please, anyone wants to take a different view, but I'm sure we all agree with your central point. We're in mad agreement, and I blame the tyranny of the eight minutes. <laughs> I just want to add a little positive word because um, India has, to everybody's amazement actually, joined in with the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which was a US meeting that just last year. And uh, so far, apparently making very positively constructive. Thank you. We have time for one last question. Unfortunately, yes, please. The lady. All right, thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, my name is Joy. I do work at the Australian High Commission, uh, but I would like to frame this as a personal question out of interest. Um, and my question is for all the panel members, if that's okay. Um, as Maddie said in her introductory remarks, foreign policy and defence issues don't appear to be a top election priority, at least for most New Zealanders. Um, I'm just wondering, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on when do you think there might be room for that to change and how that could be done in the New Zealand context beyond helpful forums such as this one? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, George. Uh, I was just about to say, uh, we hope to make Diplosphere bigger and better and, and effectively promote that. I mean, my humble thoughts on that is that effectively the media landscape uh, in New Zealand as in the rest of the world is being completely upended with obviously the internet, social media. That's only extent, only speeding up. There's an opportunity for small organisations to have a larger impact uh, now with technology and and the way you get people interested is get stories in front of them you get them to engage it's like any business when you know i worked in the tech sector for many years in sales and business development and and, and and these solutions you have to first at the top of the funnel get people interested and so you've got to get 
stuck in front of them that, that might that might invite. And the opportunity today with technology is to for small organizations to do that. That's my uh, I'm not sure I can add much there, but I would say that, um, that for most of my professional career, foreign policy has been a minority, very much a minority interest. I think for most people in most countries, what they're worried about is can they afford to buy a house? What's it going to cost them to be able to supermarket and feed their family? You know, all those practical aspects of life which loom much larger than the things that we, you know, some of us foreign policy practitioners think about. So I don't think that's ever going to shift. Uh, well done to Lipposphere for actually trying to uh, enlarge the thing and, and put, you know, all strings you're out, but I suspect that this is a good I'll just add one little twist to it. I agree with all that, and I'm sure it's the same in most countries. You can look at this actually, while it might be annoying to people like us and many of you in the audience who devoted your lives to this field, um, it's probably a very positive thing that it's a very small issue. I would suggest that the moment when large percentage of any population in any country gets seriously concerned about foreign policy, that country will be the shit. Very much on these wise words. I'm just going to ask our English panelists if they would like to add one more comment before we conclude this evening, starting with what I think just a big thank you to Dr. Sear and to all of the audience. Great, thank you. Thanks, uh, everyone, as well. Just had a further thought. I think in the 1980s, just on that last question, uh, you know, people did think about it uh, a lot, and there was the, uh, the, the USS Buchanan came in and the focus on the streets and, and the nuclear policy. So I think people, I personally disagree. I think people are interested. It's just that we have a broken, very broken media system at the moment. And in fact, if you look at other countries, uh, these other platforms are doing, uh, are engaging directly with uh, end users. Uh, so I think there's possibility. Well, I hope so, but I'm not so sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I do I do think that New Zealanders are outwards looking actually. That's why we always have a fantastic engaged audience. I would like to warmly thank our distinguished speakers for their time and talent. Uh, you, the audience, for coming to be so loyal and supporting us. And also our wonderful Brew from Victoria International Leadership Program who were helping us tonight. Uh, thank you very much. Keep tuned. They have uh, a special guest from Bali coming uh, to New Zealand soon. He's a sing he's a former diplomat, a singer, an artist, and he's going to talk about the Indonesian um, upcoming election. So keep tuned and uh, more to come. Thank you very much and thank you.